Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, I'm really excited today. We've got yeah. Emily Burgess with us today. Um, she's at the University of Portsmouth, uh, specialising in early 20th century gang culture, in particular the impact of gender and class on organised crime in London and the rise of like British gangsterism and concepts of criminal celebrity um, in the first part of the 20th century. Um, so basically, uh, we're talking women today and gangs. It, it's Peaky Blinders in skirts, isn't it, Emily? Yeah, it is, exactly. I really loved Irish history and somebody was like oh if you love Irish history watch Peaky Blinders and I watched it and I was like this is a little bit more than Irish history isn't it it's just the entire concept of post-war British society which I found absolutely fascinating and I just became absolutely obsessed with the female characters in it. We're going to find out with good reason why you became aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's do a little bit of background first uh, what challenges did women face um in post-war britain and and what was the patriarchal ideology of the time i think it's really important first to understand the victorian and wardian mm-hmm. concepts surrounding gender so that kind of 120 year period even though that's an extremely large period before that and it, gender theory can be a little bit dry so i'll try and make it as entertaining <laughs> as possible but it's really important in understanding how that you know impacted women in the interwar period so one of these most prominent ideologies was that of the angel in the house which confined femininity to the home you know showing the respectable woman was one that remained within the domestic sphere so basically just conforming to gender boundaries by being the good wife and producing children and looking after the husband so technically just upholding victorian societal values Now, contemporary women did challenge this to an extent, and it can be seen with middle-class women and the rising philanthropy of the 19th century. So women would place themselves within the sphere of the urban poor and, in essence, breaking from their own private sphere, yet they still maintained these motherly feminine roles by helping in kitchens, aiding with looking after the children of the poor. So you can see that their actions were justified by maintaining those gender boundaries you know, even though they left their own sphere. On the other hand, within the period, you've got working class women who were seen as immoral and were condemned for working in the public sphere, so through factories and mills on the lowest level workhouses. I looked extensively in one of my final year essays at 
workhouses and it is really shocking how women were demonized for having to go to these places mm-hmm. now although they didn't have a choice due to their financial situations you know working women were seen as an attack on masculinity as the husband as previously mentioned was supposed to be the provider within the household you know a woman working whether through a wife or daughter was seen as humiliating and it was avoided at all costs so ideologically the feminine domestic sphere and the masculine public sphere were supposed to remain separate however we can obviously see that this was not the case and this was challenged further in the Edwardian period with the suffragettes who I'm sure everyone knows about or I hope they do anyway (laughs) they obviously deliberately placed themselves within the masculine sphere which um, you know in essence threatened the British patriarchy at the time due to their you know outspoken political rallies in the city most notably from the WSPU Women's Social and Political Union whose motto deeds not words were truly lived by through you know clashes with the police and letterbox bombings and so forth I think the most important thing to realize is that within the period crimes were gendered so you had masculine and feminine crimes so Male crimes were that of burglary and generally more serious organised offences, while female crime was chaotic and coherently centred around the home. For example, the worst crime a woman could commit was infanticide, killing her children because it destroyed the home and the household. And this was bound up with Victorian ideas of female hysteria and women unable to control themselves. Oh, this is all the fainting and everything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's very... um, Yeah, it's very prejudiced, but that's the way they perceived crime at the time. And the suffragettes were uh, some of the first women that actually challenged this because they took part in deemed masculine crimes, which resulted in mass outrage. We'll see this with the gang I look at in the 1920s. But as a result of this, the press depicted the women of the WSPU absolutely awfully, painting them out to be ugly, monstrous characters for challenging these preconceptions. Um, it got to a point where Emmeline Pankhurst even, you know, de- deliberately dressed as the ideal Edwardian lady in order to contradict these stereotypes. And although this is not directly related to female gang culture, it is very important as it shows the changing nature of the female psyche and how women were questioning their place within society. A theme that will become clear when looking at female gangsters in the 1920s as they directly fed into that fear of the breaking of gender boundaries in the period. And this that's, was obviously just bound up with other concerns at the time. But yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell. Um, so how did the Edwardians and Victorians view race at the time? Okay, so the Edwardians and Victorians were absolutely obsessed with categorising and understanding society, you know, especially surrounding poverty and immigration. The, I think everyone knows like the East End of London and South London were placed under significant scrutiny. This was due to high immigration rates of Irish and Jewish people to certain areas, as well as the heightened poverty in these areas. So these parts of the city were perceived as almost like a colony, which is really interesting perspective because it was something to be feared by the middle and upper classes. And this carried directly into the 1920s. This fear of these parts of the city was only enhanced by Victorian understandings of criminal behaviour patterns. Um, They put more emphasis on personal or genetic attributes rather than environmental hardships as a motivation for crime. By creating this concept of a mythologized criminal class, you know, this grimy layer below 
civilised society, the Victorians removed the blame from the state, justifying poverty and crime as a moral attribute. Mm. Um, this was aided, obviously, um, at the time with the rising phrenology, which I don't know if you know, it's the study of skull shape to define... Yeah, I, do you know, I've just been behaviors. reading about uh, <laughs> Prince Albert and his obsession with the bumps on people's heads and how they basically, they thought Queen Victoria was yeah. going insane and the, um, the future Edward VII as well um, yeah. had abnormal bumps on his head and therefore was, uh, what they were essentially saying is that he was retarded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a similar thing. And um, alongside eugenics, which obviously had the sole purpose of proving white British genetic superiority, these concepts, although we see them as, you know, very backwards today, they were kind of the height of science at that point. And by dehumanising ethnic groups in the city, for example, linking the Jewish and China, uh, the Chinese to felines or cats, or the Irish and African people to monkeys, you know, even though by today's standards, we know this is horrible and racist. And But the ruling class really did see this as a way to cement their place within the social hierarchy while condemning what they saw to be the other within society. This can be seen further with, you know, the blame put on Irish and Jewish communities for the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how they were, you know, painted as this, foreign enemy and even though obviously Jack the Ripper was never found the, the the racist undertones that surrounded those cases because of that and again this came about because of heightened concerns over the urban poor who were heavily linked to concepts of race space and crime within the period what's really interesting is if, if there are three people that absolutely do not subscribe to what we now see as these horrifically racist views it's queen victoria edward the seventh and george the fifth they absolutely are infuriated by these mm. uh, preconceptions yeah no definitely but they're being they're being pushed forward by the scientists of the time and i think especially amongst the ruling class and to some extent the middle class they wanted to prove that superiority because they just didn't want to be linked to the working class and, you know, the urban poor, as they say. But you can see this further with urban explorers like Charles Booth. Mm. I don't know whether you've seen his poverty maps, but I use them a lot in my dissertation. And they're actually really fun to look at. You can spend hours looking at them. But they they were created between 1886 and 1903 and he used color coding to show how close the poor were to the elite so he used black lines to show the lowest class vicious and semi-criminal yellow for the upper class and red for the middle class mm. um in areas like Marylebone and you know a designated affluent area he drew black lines that were nearing the district so it was indicating the possible corruption of these wealthy territories almost so an invasion you know referring to the east end as this colony it was almost uh, proving um too much of a threat to civilized london society but this encroachment will become very important in understanding contemporary responses to female gangsters as they broke these class boundaries threatening these wealthy areas they were also subjected uh, subjected to outdated concepts of the criminal class. So you can see this with, um, there's a Scotland Yard detective called George Cornish, and he constantly refers to gangs of the 1920s as part of this class of people. And um, by, you know, using that language, it shows that areas of the metropole were still seen as dangerous places of moral corruption and criminality, and that the authorities were clinging on to these outdated 
perceptions of crime, which was, you know, only enhanced further at the end of the First World War. <laughs> so how does the First World War impact British society? Um, and what are the racecourse wars? Ah, the racecourse wars. Yeah, so the one of the biggest impacts on post-war society was actually the fear of post-war brutalisation which was men coming back from the First World War and being unable to adjust back to civilian life and being very violent. And as a response, crime was getting more violent. Um, I think what we need to realise is that there was no help from the government concerning mental illness and the psychological effects of warfare. So the solution of what to do with these violent men was to put them back into the army and send them to India or Ireland. And we all know that went really well. Mm. Um, (laughs) but as a result of this, um, you know, belief that the government belie- um, belief that society was expected to go back to normal, there was actually a lot of anger directed at the state. These expectations can be seen concerning gender as well um, and the pronatalist ideas of the post-war period because women were expected to leave work and rebuild the population due to the losses incurred during the war. In reality, they didn't want to do that, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the post-war period actually saw considerable social transformation, much to the disgust of the government at the time. But obviously you have rising socialism and political action culminating in the 1926 general strike. And then you've got concerning women in particular. They just they just wanted to have fun. Mm. And Americanization brought flapper cultures to London, including jazz music, dance and raised drug use, most notably cocaine. And politically, all women had the vote by 1928. So you can see that women will become a considerable force within society at the time. Young women embracing flapper culture in particular was seen as an attack on traditional femininity through their appearance and attitude. You know, with cropped hair and long dresses, it went completely against the ideal Edwardian woman who is corset-clad and matronly. And the women I have focused on in my dissertation, they embraced flapper culture and fed into con- like contemporary fears over young women in the city. And this all went on alongside a little topic known as the race course wars, which probably everyone knows from Peaky Blinders. Um, so it was an extremely important feature of criminality within the period, um, specifically in the early 20s. So Leisure practices were increasing in the interwar period and horse racing was one of the most profitable. So whoever controlled the race courses controlled the races and in turn controlled the bets and the money. It, you know, it was a big business that caused rival gangs to fight for supremacy. And um, most notable were, uh, was an Italian gang led by Darby Sabini, who was allied with Jewish gangs led by Alf Solomon and the deemed Jewish Al Capone, Edward Emanuel, which I think is one of the coolest nicknames. Um, they were in constant clashes with the Brummagem gang led by Billy Kimber and the South London Elephant Boys, among others, but it gets extremely complicated because gang alliances were broken and made so frequently. Yeah. Now, from a social point of view, um, the authorities became particularly aware of rising gang violence when it expanded from the racecourses into the city streets. And this was due to the closeness of each gang's territories in London. So linking back to that fear of otherness in the city, interest in foreign gangs within the period in particular increased, especially considering the xenophobic nature of post-war society. I think one of the most interesting characters is Darby Sabini. 
because he was known as a leader of an Italian gang. Like, however, he was born in London, didn't speak Italian, and never visited Italy. <laughs> Yet he yeah. was depicted as this <laughs> suave foreign felon, and it's very interesting. Even in this show, Peaky Blinders in season two is depicted that way. So you can yeah. see how it's obviously influenced the time. But um, his enforcers were from Sicily, but he himself had this manipulated image crafted around him, especially by the press and the courts. But similarly, the women of the 40 Elephants gang, who I've looked at, too, became shrouded in otherness due to their gender, race and class. Mm. But, um, yeah, and that leads on to my gang, really. So that sets up the, the theme there. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get to these diamond-studded knuckle dusters and talk about the 40 Elephant <laughs> Gang. Um, this is what we're all here for. Um, so, who are they? So, the, um, I think it's really important to point out that the gang had been in operation for a long time under a woman named Mary Carr, who was known as the Queen of the 40 Thieves. Uh, she's going to be the focus of my Masters, so mm. I'm very excited to develop an understanding of her. But after Carr, leadership was taken by a formidable woman called Alice Diamond and due to the gang's prominence in the Elephant and Castle district and their alliance with the South London Elephant Boys their name um, became the 40 Elephants Gang. So it had quite a strict hierarchy with over 50 gang members and it operated under four different designated queens over a 70-year period so that is an incredibly long time for an, an organised crime syndicate within mm -hmm. the period. Alice Diamond in particular brought a more violent approach to the gang, which can be linked to a very violent upbringing. So originally born Alice Elizabeth Black, she was um, born into a workhouse, grew up in a very tough environment in Lambeth, and these areas were marked black on Booth's maps, showing them to have been a perceived criminal and poverty-stricken district. Her family had criminal records, and her mother was done many times for shoplifting, and her father for assault, he actually punched the lord mayor's son in the nose which oh. i don't know why that that's that, that always sticks in my head when i think about it but um, <laughs> it's in her blood <laughs> isn't it yeah exactly and her brother was brought out of the um of prison to be enlisted in the army where he actually had his legs shot off so she had an extremely tough upbringing and she was also seen as part of this criminal class and similarly another gang member gertrude scully grew up in pov uh, in poverty in suffolk which was known as a notorious irish area i bring this up because obviously we've already discussed how the irish were perceived within the period and if you had irish blood you faced a higher chance of prosecution for drunkenness or violent offenses and it can be added that due to little legal protection working class people were three times as likely to go to prison than middle-class people. So that actually made them extremely vulnerable to judicial bias. And this is really important when looking at the third woman, Maggie Hughes, because her mother was an Irish immigrant from Dublin and her father was a notorious criminal within the period. So she was already on the police's radar because of this. She was also second to Alice in the gang's hierarchy. So these three women in particular became some of the most prolific gangsters in the 1920s. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think everyone just wants to know about their crimes, so... <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, what did they get yeah, up to? Yeah, everyone wants to know the facts. Um, so the court records show that they committed deemed masculine crimes, um, which resulted in higher sentencing. On average, they served between um, 18 and 21 month sentences, which is a long time for a woman within that period. Their crimes range from violent offences such as attempted murder, wounding with intent, assaulting police, causing riot to burglary and larceny. So very varied. Um, female violence in particular was relatively unusual. So as a result, the women gained considerable press coverage so some examples of their violent offenses these do get quite gruesome just warning um people love gruesome on this podcast oh we're gonna we're gonna go gruesome these women you know prove to be extremely different within the period due to their violent offenses because it's just very unusual you don't see it anywhere really that for example maggie was indicted for murder for nearly slashing a woman to death with a razor blade on the body and face the gang also bottled a woman at a race course, cutting her face so badly that her, you know, she was unrecognisable unrec- and her eyeball split. And then when she fell to the ground, the gang nearly kicked her to death. So, you know, these women are extremely volatile. And Alice was known to have carried around knuckle dusters laced in diamonds, mm. which is uh, obviously hence the inspiration for her name. And um, also her gang loved stealing diamonds. So I have a sneaky suspicion that was also an inspiration for her nickname. But she had a lot of previously mentioned names on her court records. So she's an absolute nightmare to hunt down. But she, there's so many pseudonyms. Um, so she was obviously trying to evade the police. But the most frequent is... Alice Diamond and she's referred to that in the press so it was obviously quite a glamorous and striking name and also very theatrical within the period so she fit massively into that idea of the 1920s gangster. There was also an instance where three women beat a group of teenage boys so badly that they actually ended up in hospital and when asked why they did it Alice said to teach them some respect so you can see the importance of <laughs> reputation within the period and it's just that idea of you know three women in their mid-20s actively beating up a, like a group of teenage boys you don't see that in historical dramas so they yeah, appear I, to be the, the irony <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know it's um pretty mad when you actually look at the crimes but there was another time that Alice found out that one of her girls was sleeping with a man from a rival gang and they nearly beat her to death so it was a very violent world that they were living in and a lot of the time if people from poor areas even spoke to the police their own families would beat them up so it was an environment that created very tough desensitized girls within a period the gang in particular gained their notoriety from their ability to shoplift on an absolutely industrial scale. Um, they conducted organised assaults in department stores in the West End and were 
seen as an absolute nuisance within the period. So one of um, the convictions for 1923 showed that Maggie Hughes was caught stealing 39 gold rings valued at £200, which is about £9,000 today. So to put that into perspective, the average man, um, you know, the average male factory worker made £204 a year and women £99. So she was basically stealing a whole year's wage. (laughs) Um, wow. in her pocket and then she's they also balls. had she has she's yeah she's one of the ones that I find particularly scary um but she also with Alice had very very good shoplifting tactics so they'd overwhelm the department store staff so they'd go up to the counter and they'd they'd uh say put in five to ten gang members and they'd overwhelm the staff and make them pull out all these expensive fur coats and all these designer outfits and everything. And while they're basically flustering the store clerk, they'd, you know, shove them up their skirts or run out the door with them. So they'd run off with these um, very, very expensive designer coats. And one of my favourite stories was um, one of their gang members went in and tried to steal some diamond rings. And one of the methods they used was um, because American gum, like chewing gum was Mm. gaining popularity in Britain at the time. So they'd chew gum and they'd actually, when the store clerk wasn't looking, they'd take the diamond uh, diamond ring and put them in their mouth yeah. and hide them in the gum. So, but one of my favourite stories is um, one of the gang members went out and she had about three diamond rings in her teeth in the gum and she walked out straight into two police officers and they saw something shining in her mouth because she had her mouth open mm. and they went oh what have you got in your mouth and she ran obviously and they caught her and she had her teeth laced with diamonds mm. so <laughs> they they were frequently they were convicted in the central criminal court in london which dealt with serious offenses so you can see within the periods that they were actually their crimes were taken very seriously mm. which i think is very important to note because they weren't just this little shoplifting gang and you can see that they're extremely violent but also extremely organized in their assaults as well um this can only be seen further in their sentences so all of them were sent to holloway prison so holloway was the largest and most notorious women's prison in europe at the time and it was known for a tough regime previously holding the suffragettes and subjecting them to force feeding brutality interestingly the women of the 40 elephants were treated like celebrities within the walls of the prison and other inmates would flock to them upon arrival and the girls would actually teach lower female thieves how to steal from the prison guards. So they almost took on the role of a really, they'd take on the role of a really violent big sister (laughs) is like how I like to think about it. And I I generally think that the girls were probably just being groomed and taught and then they'd, yeah. When they came out, they'd be, yeah, exactly. Um, but it got so bad that the actual it's reportedly the warden actually feared their arrival because of their effect on the inmate population. So you can see how influential they were on, you know, crime and punishment in the time for these authorities to actually be so fearful of them. So they're not at all phased by being sent to jail, are they? Oh, no, not at all. But I think because they were so prolific within the prison system that they had nothing to worry about. Mm. There was nobody that was going to try and challenge them. And because they had such a uniformed gang structure as well, as soon as, say, Alice went in, Maggie would take control. And yeah. then when Alice came out, 
you know, it would just, they had ways of working around it. So the gang wouldn't fall apart if one member went to prison. I think they were particularly different as well because of the targets of their crimes. So why were they different? Why are the 40 elephants um, so significant? And why have you picked them above other gangs to look at? I think they're extremely important to understanding criminality in the 1920s because they targeted wealthy districts and boutiques which showed that they were breaking from class boundaries and targeting the assumed untouchables within society and this was only amplified when they attacked the private sphere of the elite so you know this sacred place that the the scummy underworld could not get to they actually infiltrated so they'd place a pretty gang member of you know their gang into domestic service in a wealthy household um, who would then target and seduce men in public positions and then they would blackmail him for hush money so they got away with it a lot of the time because these crimes went underreported um, because for a respectable man to be blackmailed by an all-female working class gang it would have been seen as extremely humiliating yeah so this to some degree made them even more dangerous than the male gangs of the period because they had the ability to destroy their victim's reputation and infiltrate the elite by using their femininity to blackmail these men so i think that's why they're so important because they they can affect every level in society the level of innovation is startling isn't it yeah especially considering these are working class women that have little to no education i mean alice was, grew up in a workhouse for goodness sake so it's like these women really did figure it out on their own mm which I think is really important to recognise, especially in television dramas today. I think not so much now, but previously women were kind of depicted as these delicate beings within historical dramas that, you know, they kind of just do what they're told and whatever. And now it's like, oh, in actuality, they didn't. Yeah. And a lot of the times they were the organisers of these crimes. So that's why I think they're very important. How did the press view these gangs? So... There's a considerable transformation in the press, and this was due to the changing nature of press reportage in the period, where there was greater focus on human interest features and crime reports, as they were the most popular within the immediate post-war period. So people no longer wanted to read about politics or war, and they wanted to you know, hear human stories, similar to today with people wanting to read um, gossip magazines. It's the same thing. And the bigger outlets where there were increasing competition between these um, newspapers, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph saw it as important to, you know, focus on these stories of criminality, which they previously would have just disregarded. But because of the popularity amongst their middle and upper class readers, they decided to actually present them. It also, for their audiences, was a type of escapism. So this resulted in a fixation on a criminal underworld, you know, of which working class gangsters inhabited. So people became fascinated by the life of the other, which instead of being vilified, were moulded into concepts of the romantic outlaw. This can be seen with the Italian gangs in particular, as they, you know, they had a smart appearance and were dapper and um, appeared as this, you know, ideal criminal within the period but they also the women of the 40 elephants embodied the idea of the femme fatale so the rebellious woman so they too were glamorized within the period 
as they embraced flapper culture and excessive parties and lifestyles, you know, much to the reflection of cinema characters, it made them seem exciting and otherworldly within the period. And Maggie Hughes in a 1926 article from The People was actually, they make reference to her nickname of Babyface and she was depicted as beautiful and glamorous, um, despite the fact that she, you know, nearly slashed a woman to death with a razor blade. Yet Alice Diamond, on the other hand, being the leader of the 40 Elephants Gang, was vilified, similar to that of the suffragettes, as her image proved a considerable threat to masculinity at the time. And, you know, it can be seen with the negative association words used when talking about her. You know, the most frequent ones were notorious, violent, dangerous monster. So all trying to, you know, portray this very dangerous image of this female criminal. Her appearance was exaggerated considerably and, you know, the Liverpool Echo, for example, stated that she was six foot, which is incredibly tall for a woman at the time. Mm. In reality, her court records showed that she stood at five foot eight inches tall. So even though it's a clear fabrication, the average man in the 1920s stood at five foot six inches tall. Yeah. So she still would have been a formidable figure if encountered in real life. Mm. So another example can be seen as she was reported as being a strong and powerfully built woman and she could knock out a man with one punch. And the illustrated police news take this to an absolute ridiculous level when they call her an Amazon. (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. So calling her obviously a mythical creature that was seen as barbaric and unable to conform to the rules of man, it shows a lot about the nature of 1920s press reportage and how contemporary fears were exploited by the press in order to gain readership and shock their middle and upper class audiences. And by feeding into a society that was already fearful about the changing nature of femininity, the 40 Elephants Gang being women from the working class and having immigrant blood embodied fears of otherness and, you know, civil deterioration within the city. Yes. Just finally, what happens to the 40 Elephants Gang? You said they were around for 70 years. So then um, Alice actually goes to prison for quite a long time for inducing riot. And then leadership is taken up by a woman named Lillian Kendall, Mm. who is also known as the Bobhead Bandit, (laughs) which I think is an (laughs) amazing nickname. But she she brought a less violent approach, but she was very sneaky. So she brought... um, She loved driving Rolls Royces, for example. She loved driving these fast-powered cars and... Basically, they just got extremely good at shoplifting <laughs> within the period and moved outside of London to Margate and other areas. So they continued for a very long time after. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about female street gangs in the 20s. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, do you no know what? You are um, the absolute youngest person we've ever had on. You haven't even started your masters yet and it doesn't show at all. You are clearly a superstar in the no. way. Um, can't wait to hear more, the more that you research. Oh, thank um, you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Pete Brown, or more accurately, our judges from down the pub, Andrew Holmes and Johnny Dyer, will be doing most of the talking to Pete Brown because he's come on to do the history of beer, um, which made them so excited that it just would have been cruel of me and Alina to sit and ask the questions when they were just so happy um, and dying to get at him, basically. So all four of us are having a chat with Pete Brown tomorrow. And then on Sunday, you can uh, join us for a quite a relaxed conversation between myself, Peter Hart, Josh Levine and Gary Bain. So it's another cross pod with Peter Hart's military history. We talked about World War One flyers. Uh, we wanted to talk about aces that aren't as well known. And we also wanted to talk about people who 
weren't aces who were important as well. So it's just a general chat about aviation in World War One, where we just swap stories uh, and talk about some of the guys that we absolutely love from our research. It's really good fun um, and not quite as manic as the last time those two were on, which you'll be pleased to hear. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as, as little as $1 a month. All you need to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. We'd like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, but we're poor, so we'd appreciate your help. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 